Let's take our Bibles together and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I want to speak this morning about the subject, terms and conditions of service. Because that's what we've got here in Mark chapter 8. Jesus is laying down in no uncertain terms the terms and the conditions of service in the kingdom of God. And I think we'll see that as we go along. So Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to pick up reading this morning in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So reads God's inerrant and inspired and infallible and sufficient word. A couple of you that I'm friends with on Facebook might have noticed a couple weeks ago I posted a very funny-looking photo of myself. I think they're all kind of funny, but this one was especially funny. I, I, as soon as I heard about this app that was circulating around in pop culture, I downloaded the app because I wanted to see what I would look like when I was 70 or 80 years old. You know the photos I'm talking about. If you're friends with me, you saw the photo. Tripper, don't go on Facebook and put that up there right now. We want to move on. Yeah. yeah. And I got so excited when I saw these photos. I'm like, man, these look super realistic. What am I going to look like when I'm elderly, right? If you're 70 here today, no offense. <laughs> so I downloaded the app, and I opened the app up for the first time. And I'm all excited to go get my goofy picture of myself looking like I'm 80 years old, all gray and wrinkly and aged. and. And I'm all excited, and I, I open the app up, and one of the first screens when I open the app up is this long, you know, top-to-bottom screen of these tiny little words in small, small print. It's all black and white. And I'm just skimming the, this first page of this text, and, and it's, it's using all, you know, the, the, this... This page has a bunch of words in it, all this legalese, these big complicated words that I've never used, I've never heard before, I don't have any idea what all this means. And down at the very bottom of that page, if you scroll all the way down, which I did, you're asked a question at the bottom of that page. You know the question. It's, have you read and agreed to the terms and conditions of service? Now, I didn't read the terms and conditions of service. But you know what I did? I clicked agree. And I went through the app. And I, and I got my aged photo of Josh. And I was all excited. Lo and behold, later that night, the article started circulating and swarming that if you didn't read that and you just blasted through and clicked agree, 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 agree to go get your funny photo of yourself, you agreed 
to allow your facial recognition data to be harvested and sent through and stored on Russian servers. Ugh. Talk about regret. And most of the time when you just click agree and you don't really read the most of the time, you know, you're all right. You're not giving away some major, you know, amount of privacy. There's not some drastic, dramatic invasion. But every once in a while, if you're not careful and you just click the agree button, you might be signing up for and agreeing to something you might wish that you hadn't clicked agree on. That's what Jesus is concerned with in the text that we've come to this morning in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. He's concerned that Peter, and by extension, the rest of the apostles, have clicked the agree button. A little bit before the passage that we read, just to set this in context, after two years, two and a half years of teaching and training, all the truth that Jesus has poured into the skies, it converges on the disciples and on Peter. And Peter makes his great confession in chapter 8, Verse 29, you are the Christ. Jesus, I get it. I get the lesson that you've been trying to teach. You're the one. Among all these anointed ones, you are the anointed one. Among all the kings and the rulers of the earth, you're the ruler of rulers. You're the king of kings. You're the Christ. And Matthew gives us more of his confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him. In the parallel accounts, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. You've come to this understanding of the reality of who I am. I'm the Christ. You've come to agreement with, with who I am by grace through faith. Blessed are you. Let me tell you about what that means. Peter and the rest of the apostles had a a flawed view of the Messiah, of the Christ. They thought that Jesus came to be the conquering king, to lift the Roman boot off the fragile Jewish neck, overthrow the Roman oppressor. That's why a couple of verses before in verse 31, when Jesus starts to talk about how, yeah, I'm the Christ, you know what that means? It means that the Christ is gonna have to bear a cross. This stone that you're looking at right now is going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders. One day it's going to become the chief cornerstone, but first I'm going to have to die for it. And, and Peter comes in verse 32 and he rebukes Jesus. Goes from this great confession, Jesus, you're the Christ, to rebuking him. So Jesus has to rebuke Peter. Peter. Yeah, I'm the conquering king, but I'm going to conquer through suffering. Yes, I'm going to rule and reign, but I'm going I'm to become obedient unto death before I rule and reign. Peter, yeah, I'm, I'm the conquering king, but I'm also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I'm the, the pierced one of Psalm 22. I'm the, the pierced one upon whom they will look in the last day of Zechariah 12 through 14. The Messiah is going to rule and reign through suffering and sacrifice and cross-bearing. Then, in the passage we've just read, Jesus' focus and attention shifts. Because if Peter and the rest of the apostles have a wrong view of Jesus' messiahship, that's inevitably going to lead to a wrong view of their discipleship. 
if Jesus doesn't bear a cross and doesn't suffer, why should I? But no, Jesus tells them, in fact, the Messiah has come to conquer through suffering. And the one who's going to suffer and bleed and die for them now is going to call them in service and submission to him to suffer and deny themselves and to bear a cross. I want you to see this morning, Jesus terms and conditions of service in the kingdom of God. You say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus. I've surrendered my life to him. Then these things in this text that we're going to look at in the next couple minutes, these things will be the hallmarks of your life. Now, I want to be clear before we jump in and look at these terms and conditions of service. We're not talking here about the universal call to salvation. This is not how you become saved. This is how you behave saved. You want to read about the call to salvation, go take your Bible you know, sometime later today. Read John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You want to know how to be saved. You want to know how to, how to, how to be, be ransomed and redeemed you cast yourself wholly on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's your substitute. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the universal call to salvation. But that's not what we have here. What we have here is the universal call to discipleship. Because if you've come to Jesus' cross for your salvation you will inevitably come after Jesus and bear your own cross in sanctification. That's what Jesus says in verse 34, isn't it? Calls the crowd to him, and he says to them, if anyone would come after me, if you come to him for your salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there's a, a way of life, a pattern of life that's going to accompany that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 talks about the, the works that accompany our salvation. In fact, in the great passage in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says what? By grace you saved through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. This is the gift of God. You created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. So you come to Jesus for your salvation. You, you experience the what? what the Puritans called the expulsive power of a new affection, Thomas Chalmers. All of a sudden, your desires are changed. The center piece, the focal point of your life is different now. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and at work in you. You've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, you live, but it's not you doing the living. It's Christ living in you. You come to his cross and the Holy Spirit of God indwells uh, uh, you. You're filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. You come to him and experience that power. You'll come after him in holy and righteous living, in continued surrender to him. So, what are the terms and conditions of service in the kingdom of God? We've read them here in this, in this text today. I want to suggest to you four things from this text. You want to come after Christ? Do you want to follow Christ? Your life will be marked by these four things. Number one says very clearly in verse 34, if anybody wants to come after me, let him deny him." 
self. Let him deny himself. He calls the crowd to him. And we don't know if everyone in the crowd at that moment was regularly following him. We know he was talking to the 12, and then his attention shifts to sort of the general population that sort of kept up with him. And now he's, he's giving them in clear, black and white, bold terms what it means to come after him, what it means to be a true disciple, follower, student of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that you and I have got to get, get a good grip and understanding of, this is non-negotiable. You want to serve in the kingdom of God. You want to be his disciple. You have got to learn to deny yourself. And before we look at the, what that means, just don't miss the inspired irony here in this. The one who denied himself. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, the one who denied himself, who let go of heaven's glory, who forfeited the independent exercise of his divine attributes, the one who took on a veil of human flesh, came in the likeness of men, came as a servant, became obedient. How obedient? Obedient unto death. How obedient unto death? Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The one who denied himself for them is calling them to deny themselves for him. Don't miss this. Because what Jesus is calling them to is a radical, when he calls them to deny self, he's calling them to a radical shift in the center of gravity in their galaxy. The whole focal point of their lives, the whole focal point of our lives Christians, when we come to Christ and we want to follow him and come after him, the whole focal point, the center of gravity in our lives changes completely. It's not about me anymore. It's not about I. It's about Christ. It's not just about Christ even. It's about other people. It's about Christ and his gospel now. That's the center. That's the sun in your solar system. If you've come to Christ, deny yourself. And this is what Paul picks up on in Galatians 2.20, isn't it? I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ that lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, sort of parenthetically, compared to the life I used to live, the life that I now live, now that I'm one with Christ, now that I've come to him for salvation, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. You want to be his disciple, you want to follow him, you've got to learn to deny yourself. The sin that Jesus ransomed and redeemed and rescued you from on the cross in your salvation is the sin that you've got to turn away from and mortify and crucify if you're going to be his disciple. You know why? Think about this for a minute. You're smart college students and professors. What letter is at the center of the word sin? What letter is at the center of the word sin? That shouldn't shock you or surprise you. Of course it's I at the center of sin. You know why? Because at the center of all of your sin is the ascension of yourself. At the center of your sin is the ascension of yourself. 
Satan, don't, don't turn here. Satan, the, the original sinner, used to be a, a, a high and mighty angel, worship leader in heaven. I believe we've got the fall of Satan described in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And if you go and you look that up, you'll find as Satan rebels against God in that first act of sin, you'll find five I will statements. And they get progressively, if you go back and read that, they get progressively more dramatic and intense and worse until by the end of that passage in Isaiah 14, Satan says, I will make myself like the most high. And he's gone. He's fallen. The day star is fallen. Satan is banished when he says, I will make myself like the most high. And he doesn't mean I want to be like God. I want to be godly. He means I want to be God. At the center of your sin is the ascension of yourself. This is why in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. And what? We've turned everyone to his own way. So God had to send his son, the suffering Messiah, to come and take our iniquity and our selfishness and our pride and our self-love and self-protection and self-promotion and self-platforming and self-comfort and self-convenience and self-care and put it on his son. The center of your sin is the ascension of yourself. And if you're going to follow him, you've got to deny yourself. Book I'm reading with some other uh, alumni of NEBC right now, How to Worship Jesus Christ by Joseph Carroll. He says of this passage that denying yourself, taking up your cross to follow him, means the dethroning of self and the enthroning of Christ the dethroning of self and the enthroning of Christ. You want to be his disciple? Get off the throne. Your wants, your, your wishes, your desires have to take a back seat. I like this quote by Steve Timmis in his book, I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. He says this, In an age of instant gratification, denial only exists as a river in Egypt. Some of you get that later. In an age of instant gratification, denial only exists as a river in Egypt. Everything in our culture says we should pursue what we want. If you feel stuck in your marriage, leave it. If you want that promotion, go for it. If you don't want that baby, abort it. If you want that vacation, credit card it. Find your true desires and spend your life fulfilling them. After all, you deserve it. You see, though, how this call to costly discipleship runs totally in the face of that. Jesus flips that worldly, carnal, selfish mentality on his head. You say, say you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then your life will be marked by self-denial. And we're running out of time, so I'm going to fold my second point here into the first. Because when we hear about denying self, the automatic question that we want to ask is, man, if the center of gravity in my galaxy is supposed to shift, how intense is that supposed to be? Um, how much self do I need to deny? You want to know what the second term and condition of service in the kingdom of God? You not only need to deny yourself, you need to die to self. Let's look back at our text in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. So you deny self. 
And secondly, you, you die to self. What we have in verse 34 when Jesus says, take up your cross, is the extent to which you must be willing to deny self. Frankly, the extent to which Jesus may call you and I to deny ourselves. It's striking to me that um, in Mark's gospel, this is the first time that Jesus has mentioned anything to them about him dying or, or them taking up a cross. Jesus hasn't said he's going to die on a cross yet in the Gospel of Mark. So he's using this picture of the crucifixion to describe the Christian life before he's even told them he's going to die on a cross. See, the, the cross was, was a, a method of torture and instrument of death well known among the Greeks and the Persians, but you know, the Romans took that crucifixion concept and they perfected it. They took it and they, they exploited the crucifixion process to inflict maximum torture, maximum humiliation on the victim. After, you know, you've been declared guilty and, and beaten or whatever, you were given a cross beam. Generally, you didn't carry the, the whole cross up to the public area. You, the, the, the stake in the ground was waiting on the Mount of Crucifixion in public. They gave you the horizontal beam, and you took that beam, and they'd force you to carry that beam up the public road, embarrassed and humiliated until you got there. And when you got there, they'd nail you or tie you with rope to the beam that you'd carried, and then they'd take that beam and fix it to the stake awaiting you in the ground, and they might pierce you, they might kind of mock you, but the idea was you're laying there naked, bloody, a mess, and they, and they, they put the stakes in the crossroads so that everyone could see. They put them in busy intersections. You know why? So that everyone could see this is what happens when you mess with Rome. You want to raise a fist to the Roman Empire, that's what's going to happen to you. So the cross was, in a sense, it was the, not just the end of a life. The cross was the end of a life lived in rebellion against the Roman Empire. So when Jesus tells his followers, you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, what he's saying is, You've come to me for salvation. Now take up your cross and follow me. The cross for the Christian signifies the end of a life lived in rebellion against Almighty God. You want to be my follower? You want to come after me? Take up your cross. Deny self-love, self-promotion, self-protection, self-platforming, self-comfort, self-convenience. The center of gravity in your life shifts. You're a crucified man. There's no turning back. You don't have any future plans. God controls your calendar. God controls your checkbook. God controls your ministry engagement. God controls your future, your destiny. He makes your plans that day. You want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to come after him, you take up your cross and follow him. And real quick before we move on, I think that Christians today can bear a cross in two ways. 
Some God calls to bear a literal, physical cross. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters across the world, the persecuted church that serve and work in closed countries and and die martyrs' deaths, even right now. God calls some in challenging environments, in closed countries, to stand firm in the gospel and on the word of God and to pay the, the price of their life for doing so, to bear a literal, physical cross. But God, in his grace, does not call us to that here in America right now. Does that mean we're off the hook? No. Because if you look in the parallel account in Luke, Luke adds another word that Mark doesn't. Luke says, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. <laughs> don't you know, misunderstand me here. Don't, don't confuse what I'm saying. We need to pray for the persecuted church. We pray that God would grant them relief, that God would give them endurance. When you pray for our brothers and sisters, what they experience is horrible. But can I tell you something? Jesus is calling you something, frankly, calling you to something even more difficult. When a martyr meets his death, when the sword is swung and the trigger is pulled, they breathe their last and it's over. And I don't mean to belittle that. It's serious. But in a moment, it's done. Faith is made sight, absent with the body, present with the Lord. Jesus is calling all those who follow after him and come after him, not just to die once, but to die a thousand, a hundred thousand spiritual deaths over his lifetime. God might not call you to bear a physical, literal wooden cross, but he's calling you in your lifetime to mortify self, to put to death self-will, self-desire, self-ambition, and to put him first. Dethrone yourself and put him on the throne where he belongs. You know George Mueller and the story of, of Mueller and everything that he was able to accomplish for the gospel? At one point had over 10,000 kids in his orphanages. He, he, was, he was helping and caring for more kids than the entire British government. Someone asked him one time, George, what's the secret to your success in the ministry? You know, what, what, what motivates you? What, how do you do this? How do you serve this way and sacrifice this way? And he answered that by saying this, what's the secret of my success? He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller his opinions, his preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren and friends, and since then I've studied only to show myself approved unto God. I love that. There was a day that I died to George Mueller. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's your life every day, dying to self, casting headlong your carnal, sinful, fleshly self off the throne and putting Christ on the throne where he belongs. You want to come after him, you got to deny yourself, number one. Two, die to self and take up your cross. Number three, in verses 35 through 37, what I'm going to call debate yourself. So we deny ourselves and our self-will, our self 
lust, our self-ambition. We died to self. That's the extent. Cross-bearing. That's the extent that we're to deny ourselves. Number three, though, debate yourself. Starting in verse 35, Jesus kind of rattles off these four four statements. Gar in the Greek. You can see uh, I'm, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Every, every verse, 35, 36, 37, 38, all begins with that word gar, for. What is Jesus doing? See, Jesus is smart. Jesus knows that the second you and I start thinking about this, we're sitting here in chapel. Yes, I want to serve God with my life. I, I, I want to I lay it all on the altar. I want to be a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Jesus knows that the problem with the living sacrifice is that sometimes the living sacrifice wants to crawl off the altar. Jesus knows that you're sitting here all engaged and committed right now, but later tonight, you know what's going to happen? You're sitting here thinking about self-denial and bearing a cross, and you're... Your sinful self is going to insert itself into this costly discipleship conversation. And your sinful carnal self is going to say to yourself, are we sure this is the best thing to do? Are we, are we sure we can't get away with less in serving the Lord? Uh, are we sure that this is worth it? Jesus anticipates that. So he gives his disciples in 35, 36, 37, and 38, he gives them sort of talking points for this conversation that they will inevitably have with themselves. Kind of like, like if you've ever played whack-a-mole, self is going to keep popping up when you're convicted about this and say, no, 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 don't do it. No, it's not worth it. No, no, you can get away with less. Don't give him your all. That's going to hurt. It's going to cost you. Self is going to pop up. And what Jesus is doing in these verses, he's, he's giving them sort of a mallet of truth to beat the, the mole of self back down to the place that it belongs in. Because that's what's going to happen. Mark my words. You're going to be all committed here, and then later on, self will insert itself into the conversation and want to dissuade you from surrendering all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've got to arm yourself with the truth of, of the word of God, with the reality that in the kingdom of God, up is down. To lose is to keep. Everything in the kingdom of God is upside. Really, it's not upside down. Really, everything in the kingdom of God is right side up, and everything in this world in which we live in our flesh is upside down. You need to think right side up. And that's what Jesus helps them to do. Think about the logic of this. Look, it might feel like you want to save your life in verse 35, but if you try to do that, here's what's going to happen in reality. You're going to lose it. Don't give in. It might think, you, you might think it makes sense to, to gain the whole world, but if you do that, you're going to forfeit your soul. Don't give in to that false logic. Preach to yourself. Debate with your sinful self. Remind yourself that to keep is to lose. To lose is to keep. To gain is to forfeit. To forfeit is to gain. Because you're a servant in the kingdom of God. Love this quote from the Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, 
that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley, thy life in my death. You want to come after him? Your discipleship, your following him, needs to be underwritten with a, with a, a clear, concrete confidence that it's worth it to bear a cross. This light momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians 4.17, is working in you an eternal weight of glory. Yes, crucifixion now, but then exaltation. Yes, yes, sorrow and sickness and suffering and sacrifice now, but then glory. And when self wants to insert itself into the conversation and dissuade you from denying self and bearing your cross, you've got to remind yourself of the true right truth and logic of the kingdom of God. Don't try to save your life here. You'll lose it then. Finally, quickly, in verse 38, number four, you want to come after God and, and follow him. You want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. You deny yourself, die to self, debate yourself, and preach that truth to yourself. Finally, in verse 38, declare yourself. He says in verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You want to be his disciple? You say you've come to the Lord Jesus to follow him and he, and he saved you and given you a new heart, new desires. Then you know what? Everybody around you will know it. Your relationship with the Lord is personal, but it's not supposed to be private. Your relationship with the Lord is personal. He saved you. He's called you. In the time he's called you, in the place he's called you, for a mission that he's called you to. Your relationship with him is personal, but it's not to be private. There are no, you know, secret service agents in the kingdom of God. So declare yourself. Declare yourself. You, you declare what he's done in and with and for and through you. You declare it with your words, with your works, and you declare it in water. You declare him by telling people the truth of the word and the gospel. You declare it by backing up those words with holy and righteous living. And then you declare it in the waters of baptism upon your conversion. Public testimony that I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. That's who I am. And that's what you profess in the waters of baptism. So our relationship with him is to be personal but not private. The big motivation for declaring yourself, he, he says it there in verse 38. There's coming a day when the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to return. And we know from church history in Acts chapter 1, he's ascended after his death, burial, and resurrection. He sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting on the Father's word to return for his bride. Jesus says, be looking for that day, declaring yourself and your faith in light of that day. The first time that Jesus came, we're reading about it in the Gospel of Mark, the first time he came, it was about bearing sin and guilt and shame. Your sin and guilt and shame and my sin and guilt and shame. The first time he came, 
It was about bearing sin and guilt and shame. The second time that he comes, it's going to be about glory and rule and reign and sovereign authority. The shame he bore the first time gets reversed in his second coming. I got news for you. If you've trusted in him and Christ is in you and you're in him, your shame and guilt gets reversed with him at his second coming. The crucifixion that you endure here below turns into exaltation with him in glory. The suffering and the sacrifice that you give turns into, turns into an eternal weight of glory and exaltation when he comes again. Your shame and suffering gets reversed too. Love this story about D.L. Moody. He one time took a trip to, to England go visit a bunch of people over there. And he, in one time in a meeting with a couple guys and a good friend of his, Henry Varley, you know, they're sitting there talking and praying together. And, and Varley later on describes how he doesn't even remember saying this to Moody. But Moody, it stuck with, with D.L. Moody. He remembered it clearly, that great preacher and evangelist and Bible teacher Moody remembers in this conversation in England, he remembers his friend Henry Varley saying, you know, Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated and surrendered to him. That struck Moody. Varley didn't even remember saying it, but he heard that clear as day. He goes on later to talk about how, man, that must have been God speaking through you somehow, because I heard it. Later on that trip in England, he describes an experience he had sitting under the preaching and teaching of Charles Spurgeon, who we refer to affectionately today as the Prince of Preachers. And Spurgeon's up there preaching, and as Spurgeon is preaching on surrender and sacrifice, that quote rings through Moody's mind. Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully surrendered to him. And he says, as he's sitting there listening to Spurgeon, all that truth converged in a moment, and he realized, here are his words, not mine, he realized, no, he said, a man, just a man. He did not say a great man, nor a learned man, nor a rich man, nor a wise man, nor an eloquent man, nor a smart man, but simply a man, I am a man. And it lies with the man himself, whether he will or will not make that entire and full consecration by the grace of God, I will be that man. And he says, when this truth converged on his soul in that moment, he looked back up to where Spurgeon was speaking and he, he saw something he'd never seen before in his entire life. He didn't just see the high and mighty prince of preachers proclaiming from the pulpit. He saw a broken, feeble man being used by God to preach and proclaim the truth. Spurgeon wasn't doing the work. God was doing the work as Spurgeon surrendered to the Lord. And Moody said, by the grace of God, I will be that man. These are the terms and the conditions of your service. Full surrender, full consecration, full crucifixion, full preaching to yourself, full declaration of the gospel to everybody around you. This is the badge you wear. So I want to ask you now before I pray, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully surrendered to him. Will you be that man? 
Will you be that woman? Will this be that school? Will you be those students? Will you be those staff and faculty? By God's grace, you can. He's born a cross for you to save you from your sin. Kill your own sin by his power and bear your cross for him. Father, we thank you for bearing a cross for each one of us. Lord, we thank you for its power, that the explosive power of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection is alive and at work in us, killing our old sinful desires and and putting new godly heavenward desires in their place. Lord, will you help us to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves? Help us, Lord, when, when, when this is a fight for us between the spirit that, that we now live in and the flesh that still wars against us. Help us to preach to ourselves, to remind ourselves that in your kingdom up is down, to lose is to gain. And Lord, will you make our light so shine before men in declaration of the gospel that men would see your good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and ask that by your word and your spirit and its power, you'd help us to live this way now. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.